Let's pray together. Father, we do love to proclaim and to praise you because your faithfulness has been so great to us. Even when we are faithless, you are faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Father, I pray that you would teach us to praise you, to love you, to worship you, to commit our whole lives to you because of your great faithfulness to us. Father, we want you to enter into this moment now with us and to help us as we open your word because we want to hear from you. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, author Ibram X. Kendi tells the story of how his mother came to be married to his father and how in the process she rejected what the Bible teaches about headship in marriage. So on the Tuesday before Kendi's parents were to be, uh, the Saturday when they were to be married, the pastor who was officiating the ceremony was meeting privately with the couple to go over their wedding vows. And when he read the part that says from the vows, husbands, love your wives and wives obey your husbands, Kendi says that his mother balked. And she said out loud to the pastor, I'm not obeying him. And the pastor looks at um, Kendi's father and says, what? And then Kendi's father looks at her and says, what? And she looks right in to her husband-to-be's eyes, and she says what Kendi says was almost in a shout. She says, the only man I ever obeyed was my father when I was a child. I am not a child, and you are not my father. So the dad stood down, the pastor stood down, and they wrote their own vows without that language from Ephesians 5 about husbands loving their wives and wives affirming the leadership of their husbands. And Kendi uh, writes this about the whole episode. And I'm just going to read to you a little excerpt from his book. By the way, I don't recommend this book. This, was, uh, this is a woke book filled with false teaching. I've read it so you don't have to, okay? All right, so, uh, but anyway, Kendi says this about this whole episode. He says, Dad should not have been shocked at Ma's resistance. For some time, Ma had been rethinking Christian sexism. After they wed, Ma attended consciousness-raising conferences for Christian women in Queens, what Kimberly Springer calls the black feminist movement, had finally burst through the sexist dams of Christian churches. End quote. So he views what the Bible says about husbands and wives and what the Bible says about authority within marriage, he views that as sexism. He just calls it sexism. So according to uh, Kendi, feminists had rejected the idea that wives were called by God to affirm and to follow the leadership of their husbands. The Bible in Ephesians 5 says one thing about this authority. Feminism says this other thing, and obviously you have to go with what feminism says, and the Bible has to, to go, according to Kendi. I tell you that story 
just as one illustration out of billions I could probably give you to illustrate that we live in a world that has an allergy to authority. You don't have to spend very much time in America to know that egalitarian notions of authority have won the day. That's the case not merely in marriage. It's also the case in just about every other relationship and sphere of life. It's the case with parents. It's the case with employers, with the government, and on and on the list goes. People don't like authority. And even though many people, sometimes they're willing to grant the legitimacy of certain authorities, they often, even though they'll say they're legitimate authorities, they will often rebel against them. But what happens to the world if that allergy against authority is taken to seed? What happens to a nation in which none of the citizens feel it their duty to respect governing authorities? What happens at an office, a place of work, where none of the workers respect what an employer expects of them? What happens in a family where children defy parents, wives evade the leadership of their husbands, husbands rebel against Christ? What happens is not happiness and freedom. What happens is brokenness, anarchy, and bondage. What happens in a church? What happens amongst the congregation of God's people when proper authorities aren't recognized and affirmed? What happens is nobody cares about God's word anymore. Everyone's ignoring it. No one cares about what the preacher's saying anymore. He gave up on preaching the word of God a long time ago. Nobody really cares about what he has to say. Just sort of grind your way through that 30 or 40 minutes every Sunday morning. What happens in that kind of a situation? In a church, what happens is the same cursed situation that you see at the end of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. You become the seedbed for all kinds of error, morally and doctrinally. You have gross immorality. You have lying. You have idolatry. You have, like at the end of Judges, kidnapping and war. Authority is a gift to be received, but so many people don't want that gift. They would rather have their own way, and ultimately that leads to misery upon misery. So if you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in verses 7 through 11. In my last sermon on 2 Corinthians 10, we learned that there were false teachers who had risen in influence in the Corinthian church. They were not only teaching falsely, but they were also raising themselves up as rivals to Paul. They were putting themselves and their teaching forward in order to displace Paul and his authority as an apostle within that church. And so Paul tells the congregation in verses 1 through 6 that they need to oppose and to deal with these people who are rising up as adversaries to Paul. Now, in the passage we're looking at today, verses 7 through 11, Paul is instructing the Corinthians about his own authority among them as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And there are three items that I want you to see in what he's saying about his own authority. We're going to see the history of Paul's authority in verse 7. 
the purpose of Paul's authority in verse 8, and then the integrity of Paul's authority in verses 9 through 11. So the history of Paul's authority, the purpose of Paul's authority, and the integrity of Paul's authority. Now, the first item here is the history of Paul's authority. Everybody look at verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Now, that first sentence is really interesting because in the original, literally, it says something like this. It says, look at what is before your eyes, but it's literally something like, see the things according to face. I know that's really bad English. Uh, the ESV was, says it better. But the literal rendering kind of helps us to see a little phrase that connects us back to verse 1, where you see that exact same phrase, according to face, appear. In verse 1, Paul says, I'm humble when face to face with you. I'm humble according to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. This connection to verse 1 is drawing our mind to the fact that their evaluation of Paul according to face, according to his outward appearance when he was with them, was that Paul was lowly and humble, which they very much took to be a bad thing. So we, we talked about last time Paul saying that some of you are regarding me as walking according to the flesh. And that was not good as far as they were concerned. It was, it was a reason to ignore Paul because of that. So they very much took that to be a bad thing because they associated lowliness and humility with weakness. And so they came to the wrong conclusion that humility was signaling weakness. Now Paul is telling them, okay, you're really good at observing outward appearances and making judgments. Then look at what is right in front of you. Look what is before your eyes. Look at me and make the judgment that should be most obvious to you when you compare me to the false teachers. The, the false teachers are challenging Paul's authority, and Paul is reasserting it by telling them to look at what's most obvious about their relationship to Paul. And it's, it's a little history lesson that he gives them here. He says, look at what's before your eyes, and then look at the next part of the verse. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Are we. Again, we've seen this over and over in 2 Corinthians, but there's an apostolic plural here. So when he says, so also are we, he means, so also am I. So Paul is saying that the authenticity of their conversion, any of you who are saying that you're in Christ, you're confident that you're in Christ, the authenticity of their conversion bears witness to the authenticity of the one who led them to their conversion. It bears witness to the authenticity of the one who led them to Christ. In other words, Paul says that if any of them are really confident that they are Christians, they need to remember how they came into the faith in the first place. The reason they came into the faith, you can all go back and read it, Acts chapter 18, was because Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, came to them. And evangelized them. And the Spirit landed on them in power and they responded in faith. And so Paul's essentially saying to them, you guys are questioning my authority. If my message and authority are fraudulent, then what would that mean about you? 
You're Christians because you responded to a message that I brought to you. Christ made me an apostle to the Gentiles, sent me directly to you. If I'm a phony, guess what? You're a phony. But if you aren't a phony, then, I, then I'm not a phony. Bottom line, if you're going to call into question Paul's authority as an apostle, you're calling into question the message that he preaches. And if that message isn't true, then anybody who believes in that message isn't true either. Their faith isn't real. And so Paul's reminding them the history of their relationship to one another. He's the one that evangelized them. Where did they learn this faith from in the first place? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. He's talking about when he first evangelized them. It wasn't in pervasive words, persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The Corinthians know good and well what happened when Paul first came and evangelized them. He wasn't coming to them as some smooth-tongued, ear-tickling preacher. There was nothing about his personal presentation that could have dazzled anyone. Their faith wasn't resting on the wisdom of men. Anything great and, you know, great shakes about Paul. So there was nothing great about him. Nevertheless, when he preached the word to them, the Spirit showed up in power and they got saved. If all of that was a fake, then Paul is a fake and they have no reason to expect that they themselves are in Christ at all. They would still be just pagans without hope and without God in the world. So you see the logic of where Paul's going with this. You know, my mom and dad are here today up from Louisiana if it weren't spring and it were the fall, I would probably make some gumbo for them uh, while they are here because that's what we do in the fall in Louisiana. But springtime is for crawfish boils, so we're probably not going to have gumbo while they're here. But just imagine for a minute that this week uh, I did decide to make uh, gumbo for them. And so I spend the afternoon getting everything ready. I make the roux. I cook the chicken and the sausage because Susan doesn't like seafood. I pour in the saturies. I stew the tomatoes and the onions and the okra on the side. I heat up the garlic bread, and then I serve the entire family. Because in my house, when, people make, when, when gumbo is served, I make it, okay? <laughs> then the eight of us, my family, mom and dad, we're all sitting around the table. Everybody's enjoying it, and I'm basking in the glory of my creation. My head starts to grow a little bit. I get a little bold in my pride and vanity. And I say something like, boy, mama, bet you never had gumbo like this. This is the real stuff right here. Not like that stuff you've been making for all your life that I grew up with. I'm not sure why you don't quite know what you're doing when it comes to gumbo. But this gumbo that I'm making, now this is the stuff. Now, how's my mom going to respond to that? After my dad reaches across the table and thumps me in the head, uh, well, how's she going to respond to that? Well, she might say, if you are confident that your gumbo is great, then maybe you ought to consider that just as your gumbo is great, so is mine. Everything you learned about making gumbo, you learned from me, Junior. <laughs> if I hadn't shown you how to make roux, you'd still be dumping it out of a pre-made package. 
if my gumbo is bad, yours is bad because everything you're doing is what I showed you. But if your gumbo is the best, like you insist that it is, then guess what it means? She might just look at me and say, boy, the servant is not greater than the master. <laughs> okay? And she would be right. That's what's going on here with Paul. Are these Corinthians really going to look at the master, the apostle Paul? The man who Jesus himself appeared to and spoke to on the road to Damascus. The man who Jesus himself commissioned and authorized to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The man who regularly receives direct divine revelation from the spirit of Christ speaking in him. Are these people really going to look at Paul, their father in the faith, Jesus' mouthpiece, the one who gave the spiritual birth to them? Are they really going to look at Paul and tell him that his version of the faith is not up to par? And theirs is better. Please. Now, it's tempting to hear that and say, well, boy, those Corinthians sure are bullheaded and stupid. Here they are. They've got the Apostle Paul standing right there with them, speaking to them. And they think they've come up with something better than what he taught them. And I think this is where we have to check ourselves a little bit. Because guess what? We've got the Spirit of Christ speaking directly to us through Paul right here. How often have we said in our hearts, maybe not in so many words, but still said it in substance. How often have we said in our own hearts, you know, I know what the Spirit of Christ is saying to me through this word. But I think I know a little bit better. Every time we sin, we are essentially saying that. We are essentially saying, look, Lord, I know what your word says, but I really do think that my happiness, my well-being will be better served by going off your script for a little while. When we do that, we aren't really making gumbo. We're making hash out of our lives. We're not smarter than God. We are not smarter or wiser than his servants and spokesmen that he sent to us to speak to us in his word. We're not going to come up with anything better. And guess what? Nobody's going to come through this church and come up with anything better than what we have already received. If anybody does come through this church telling you or communicating to you from here or from out there or anywhere that they've got something better than what's right here, you don't listen to them. If I or an angel comes to you preaching to you a gospel other than the one that you received, you don't receive it. Let him be accursed, Paul says. So what are we recognizing in saying that? What we're saying is that if there is any good thing in our lives, and in particular, if, if, if there's like a genuine Christian faith in our hearts, where did that come from? If there's any good thing in our lives, genuine Christian faith, we got that from God. And we got it from God through his apostles and prophets. It all traces back to the Lord 
and what he has done. And it makes no sense at all to say that we know better than him about any of this at any time. We don't know better. And every time we go off the script, we're messing it up. It, and it doesn't make any sense at all. It's, it's, it's absurd. So Paul is rehearsing the history of his authority among them. And guess what? It started with his evangelizing them. And his evangelism was effective. It gave birth to them. And so that is bearing witness to the authenticity of his authority. So the history of Paul's authority is in verse 7. Then in verse 8, you've got the purpose of Paul's authority. Everybody look at verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. That little word for at the beginning of the verse means that Paul is giving them an explanation about why he's not ashamed to boast about his authority in relation to them. Verse 7 says that their being in Christ bears witness to the authenticity of his apostleship and authority. Verse 8 is explaining why he has no reason to be bashful about that authority, even proclaiming that authority to them. The ESV says it this way. It says, if I boast a little too much of our authority, that's the phrase there. It's not my favorite rendering, actually, because it might suggest that he's crossed some boundary into forbidden territory, like I've, I've, I've boasted too much here. Um, I, I don't think that's at, at all what he means in, in the language. It, it just means something like, if I boast a little bit more about my authority, if I continue boasting on about my authority further, I will not be ashamed. So he's talking about, when he says he's not, he won't be ashamed, he's talking about whether or not he will be ashamed before Christ for boasting the way that he's, he's boasting about his authority. Whether he will be ashamed at the second coming of Christ, when Christ exposes everything, judges every person according to their works. Is he going to be ashamed for how he's speaking now? And he's saying, I'm not going to be ashamed for speaking of my authority in this way. He's saying he won't have to be ashamed about boasting in that authority. Why won't he have to be ashamed about that? Sounds like kind of a prideful thing for a person to be doing. Well, Paul's not viewing it that way. Well, why is that? Well, before we can answer the question, we have to define what he means by authority here. And, uh, and I, I, so I want us to define that term. And to do that, I want to give you a definition that I read in a book titled The, the Rule of Love uh, by Jonathan Lehman. And he gives a definition of authority that applies here and I think is really insightful. He says this. I'm just going to read to you, okay? So just listen, listen to this. He says, authority is not the same thing as power. Power is ability, like the power to lift up a rock. At age 15, you might have the power or ability to drive a car, but you don't possess the authority to do so. You have to wait until age 16 to get a license. Without a license, you're not authorized. Authority, again, is a moral right or a moral permission slip to make judgments and exercise power in a particular domain. It's a license or an authorization. Others inside of that domain then possess an obligation to obey, at least according to the terms specified in the authorization. I have to obey the policeman about the speed limit. I don't have to obey him about who to marry. 
Or to use another example, a father possesses authority over his children. They fall within his domain. But that doesn't mean he possesses absolute power or ability to do with them as he pleases. God never authorizes fathers to exasperate or harm their children. No father possesses that authority. Rather, his authority over his children must always remain within the terms specified by the authorizer. And who's the authorizer? It's God. End quote. So our culture understands and accepts what power is today, but our culture does not understand or accept what authority is. Because authority implies that some people have been authorized... And in this context, authorized by God to exercise power in certain domains while others don't have that power. And in a culture that idolizes egalitarian notions of authority, that kind of inequity is resented and resisted. And yet the Bible says that that kind of authority is given by God all over the place. We may or may not like the one who's authorizing. We may or not like the one who's being authorized. We may think that we need to be the ones making those judgments. In any case, our culture does not treat authority as a good thing that's given to us for blessing. But Paul doesn't feel that way at all about it. He's not bashful or blushing about his authority. He's just just asserting it straight up. Why is that? Well, the first reason is because authority biblically is a good gift from God. Godly authority is not a bane, but a blessing to us. Have you ever been here? Have you ever been under the authority of a good and godly person in your life? Was that a good thing or a bad thing for you? The Bible everywhere affirms what we often learn from our own experience. Godly authority is a good thing. And so Paul's not ashamed of that. But the second reason here is who gives Paul his authority? Jesus authorized Paul to bear his name before the Gentiles. Jesus authorized Paul. Jesus gave Paul authority. Is Jesus' authorization to Paul a bad thing or a good thing? If you're boasting in Paul's authority, you're boasting in what Jesus has done, which is to give him that authority. And it's by definition good because of the one who's granted it to him. Why would the Apostle Paul be ashamed of that? Third reason here, and here's the one that's in the verse. What is Paul given authority to do for these people that he's preached the gospel to? Look at the middle of verse 8. Paul says that the Lord gave him this authority not to tear them down, but to build them up. Yes, We learned last time that Paul is there to tear down strongholds and speculations and lofty opinions raised up against the knowledge of God, verses 4 to 5. Paul's there to tear down false teaching and lies, but he's not there to tear down God's people. That's not what he's been authorized to do. He's been authorized to build them up, to make them strong, to make them healthy, and to make them whole. Paul's not ashamed to boast about his authority because he's been authorized to be God's agent of good to his people. Paul's authority is a divine conduit of grace into their lives. It's good news that God has given him this authority. 
And that's how all of us should be thinking about godly authority. Every person in any position of authority, especially those in spiritual positions of authority, every person should be thinking about authority in this way. We don't have to be bashful about authority when we're exercising authority in order to build up and not to tear down. You know, we're in a season of, of graduation right now. We just had Anna and Jake and Sierra come up here, and I was back there. So congratulations to you three. We are so proud of you and, and grateful for you. And um, we are so, we're praying for you as you take your next steps into your adult life. One thing I would say to you, you remember as you go forth, godly authority is a blessing in your life. I confess, when I was in your place, I was your age, I didn't always receive that or accept that. When I graduated from high school, it was customary for graduates to take a big senior trip together. It was usually to, to go to the beach or something. And I really wanted to go with my friends on a senior trip to Florida. Would have been it would have been a mess. It was guys and girls all riding together, staying who knows where with who knows who coming through rooms and staying with it. I have no idea what would have, would have happened there. Um, but it was the kind of thing I had no business as a Christian um, going to and being around. I knew that, but I was still foolish enough to just want to go and to, and to be with my, my friends. But when I asked my parents for permission to go, they exercised their authority one more time on my way out the door and said, no. Our church was sponsoring a senior trip, which had chaperones, a place to stay, away from all the crazy stuff that was going on. If I wanted a senior trip, I could go on that, but, but I didn't want to go on that trip because that's not what my friends were doing. I wanted to go on this other one, and so I huffed and I puffed and complained and acted like a child. And after all that, the answer was still no. They were so blessedly stubborn. It was really good. Mom and dad held their ground, and they were right to do that. There's no telling what kind of awful stuff I might have gotten into if I had gone on, on that trip. What's going on here? You've got parents exercising godly authority in my life and it was I can see now even if I, I couldn't see it then it was a great blessing to me no parent should have any shame about exercising that kind of authority with their children because that kind of authority is what your kids grow up to bless you and to revere you for and at the end of the day they don't respect you for backing down they just don't and you're not helping them if you're, if you're doing that it's the same thing here with Paul. Paul's not ashamed to boast about the authority that God had given him to channel the grace of God into the lives of God's people. It's an authority to build them up, to help them, not to tear them down. It's an authority for their good and flourishing, even if they don't perceive it to be so at a given moment. Is that how you are viewing godly authority in your own life? So children here in the room, do you bristle and resist the godly authority of your parents in your life when it goes against what you think that you ought to be able to do 
with your life. You children, do you know that a big part of your growth in Christ right now, one of the main parts of your growth in Christ right now is learning how to joyfully submit to your parents' authority. It's not rocket science, but that is what it means to follow Christ for you right now, is a joyful submission to your parents' authority. When you've got parents who love you and are trying to look out for you and to care for you, especially if you've got Christian parents who love you, trying to lead you in the way of Christ, do you realize what a blessing that is to you? Don't be so committed to your own self-will that you can't see that, even now. If you want to be wise beyond your years, you learn how to submit to authority, especially the, the authority of your parents. You need to thank God for that authority and make it your aim to honor Christ by honoring your parents' authority in your life. Parents, how are you doing with the authorities in your life? None of us are without authorities in our life. How are you doing with the spiritual authorities in your life? When the word of God is preached by an elder in Sunday school or maybe from this, this pulpit, are you trying to honor those authorities and to see them as God's provision and blessing for you? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and verse 17. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I'll just say this. This applies not just to church authorities, but to any authority in your life, if you don't know how to honor the authorities in your life, parents, you're going to have a hard time teaching your children to honor the authorities in their life. You have to be blazing the trail in honoring God-ordained authorities and not constantly despising them, bad-mouthing them. So Paul rehearses kind of his history of authority with them. Then he talks about the purpose of his authority, it's not to tear down, but it's to build up. Then finally, he addresses the integrity of his authority. Everybody look at verse 9. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Paul's saying, look, what I'm writing to you here is not to scare you. Remember, Paul's goal, Paul's goal is not to tear them down, but to build them up. Apparently, there were some in Corinth who were suggesting that Paul's motives were not so mobile, noble as that. How do we know that there were some people in Corinth who were questioning Paul's motives in writing, trying to say he's just trying to frighten them? Well, look at the next verse. For they say, quote, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Notice that part, that part of this verse is in quotation marks. Paul is quoting from his critics that are in the congregation at Corinth. I think it's from the very false teachers who are trying to undermine his authority among the people, and they're doing it this way. What are they saying? They're claiming that Paul is one way while he's with them in person, but another way when he's absent and writing to them. And both ways are actually contemptible to them. 
but they're complaining about this. So when he's in person, he acts like a total wimp. Physically, his presence was apparently unimpressive, according to these guys' account of things. And so we're not sure why that was the case. What, what, what was it about him physically that made him unimpressive to be around? There's this ancient source called, uh, which I, I don't put a whole lot of stock in, but it's called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. It gives us our only known physical description of Paul, and it describes him this way. It says that he was small of stature with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting, so apparently he was a monobrow, and a nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness, for now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. A lot of people have pointed to that and said, well, he just, that didn't sound like he looked very good. I, I, I don't, first of all, I'm not even sure this is an you can put any historical stock in this, but even if it, you could, I don't think it was necessarily a bad description, even on their terms, because it says there at the end, he appeared as a man, but he had the face of an angel. So I don't know that it was trying to uh, describe him as, as contemptible, even on ancient standards. But in any case, I think it's probably more likely what was unimpressive about his physical appearance was it's probably his thorn in the flesh, which he talks about later in the book which was some kind of a physical condition that was afflicting him. I think it was most likely, we'll talk about this later, I think it most likely had to do with his eyes. So it may be that there was a problem with his eyes that would have been visible to everyone who looked at his face. But Paul's opponents didn't just note his physical appearance, they also noted his speech. They said it was contemptible, which means that he wasn't a polished rhetorician. Paul himself seems to have confessed as much in, in 1 Corinthians. He, he, he makes no claims to having great oratorical skills on the level of, of the great Greek orators. And it seems like they really admired the Greek orators, and Paul's not doing their whole style uh, of rhetoric. So he knows and he admits that he's no great shakes when it comes to, to public speaking. But according to his adversaries in Corinth, Paul looks weak, his speaking is weak, but when he writes his letters, so he's real weak when he's, he's with them. But when he writes his letters, he's harsh and abrasive. Basically a pain in the neck. There, then he has a spine when he's not with them. So he's a mouse in their presence, but really bold when he's away from them. So he seems to be, in their view, they're, they're painting him like he's kind of a, a, a hypocrite. And maybe a coward. There's no bite to the bark that they see in his letters. So you can just, you can blow Paul off. I mean, there's no reason to listen to him. You got tons of teachers who are better than this guy. That's what the, the false teachers seem to be saying. Have you ever known somebody who was really conflict averse whenever they are with you, but when they're not with you, they go off and they send you really harsh texts or emails? I've known people like that. When you're with them, you ask them what's wrong. They don't really tell you. They deflect. They don't tell you what's going on, what's really on their mind. Later, you get the email or the text in which they let it all hang out, and they dump their grievances and writings and words that they would never say to your face. How do you feel about a person who treats you that way? The one feeling you don't have for them is respect. It's contemptible to be muling in person, but roaring when absent. 
And that seems to be what Paul's opponents are accusing him of. And they're using that line to convince God's people not to trust him anymore. And so how does Paul respond to this? We'll look at verse 11. Whoever's saying that, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Paul is asserting his integrity here. Sure, Paul may have been gentle with them at times when he was present with them. But that's not because he was muling and afraid. If he was ever gentle with them and they ever had recollections of him being gentle with them, it's because he was relating to them as if he was their father. Not trying to destroy them, maybe trying to, to lead them. Try, the, the adversaries trying to transform fatherliness into faithlessness is a lie on the part of the adversaries. Paul says that there's no daylight between his message in his letters and his behavior in their presence. He has total and complete integrity with them, and his adversaries are lying. It's why the Corinthians need to deal with these adversaries. They are just trying to yank the rug out from under Paul so that nobody will listen to him anymore. And so Paul's re rehearsed the history of his authority with them, the purpose of his authority. It wasn't to tear down, but to build up. But now the integrity of his authority. I'm the same man with you as I am when I'm, when I'm absent. Well, what are we to make of all this? Well, let me give you two brief items of application here. One of the things we learn from this is that you and I should always receive godly authority as a blessing and not as a burden. Now saying that, I'm, I'm not saying that sometimes people in authority, um, you know, that, that people in authority never abuse their authority. We all know that people often abuse authority. Um, but godly authority exercised rightly is not something that you should be resisting. It's something you should be thanking God for and submitting to. Abuses of authority, there are proper ways to confront that when that happens. But godly authority is something that we should receive and embrace. If you ever get into a mode as if all authority is abusive and oppressive to you, you are not in a good place. You are not going to be in a place in where you can submit yourself to God's authority. Christians are people who understand what authority is, and we accept that and receive it from the Lord as a blessing. Second thing, not just always receive godly authority, but always exercise godly authority to be a blessing and not a burden to others. Which means God doesn't give you authorization to go and destroy people with the authority that he gives you. Now, you might destroy speculations, you might destroy false teaching, but we're always holding out hope, or at least we're trying to, holding out hope that sinners might turn from their wicked ways and come to repentance. We know that we're not separating right now in this world uh, the wheat from the tares. The Lord is going to do that, and he is going to bring to account every abuse of authority. And he's going to bring to account every person who's resisting godly authority. But the way we're supposed to exercise authority, whenever we have it, is in a way that's a blessing to others, not a burden to others. Jesus said it this way to his, his disciples. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles 
lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Which means, you've seen how the Roman Empire exercises their authority. They kill, they've got tax collectors who are stealing from us. They are abusing their authority left and right. We know there is ungodly exercises of authority in the world, but it is not so among you. When you exercise authority, you are not self-aggrandizing and asserting your own will and serving your own purposes whenever you lead or whenever you exercise authority. When you exercise authority, it's going to be like Jesus exercised his authority. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which means Jesus is our pattern for a godly exercise of authority. Guess what? It was real authority that Jesus had. Real authority. Whatever his word was, was whatever was everybody had to obey. He had absolute authority. It wasn't relativized at all. Absolute authority over everything. Real authority, and yet, he was really a servant at the same time. He was pouring himself out for the sake of the people that he was leading. He was dying for them. Which means, if you're a Christian in authority, that's how you do it. It's never about serving yourself and your own interests. It's about leveraging your authority for the glory of God and for the good of his people. That's what it's about. In any kind of situation of authority that you're in. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we want you to know that Jesus used his authority to come and save the world. The Bible says that all of us are sinners. Because we're sinners, we deserved we deserve to die and to go to an eternity apart from him and to be punished forever, the Bible says. But because of God's great love towards us, he sent us his son, Jesus, to die for us on the cross. He paid the penalty that our sins deserved. He paid that penalty for us. He was raised up three days later so that he could offer to us eternal life. And so now we don't have to fear the curse of sin anymore, which is death and, and, and the penalty of hell forever separated from him. We can have eternal life. Through Christ. The Bible says you can't earn that. The Bible says you just have to believe in Christ. And if you repent of your sin and believe in Christ, the Bible says that you will be saved. And that invitation is open to all. And on the authority of Jesus, I extend it to you. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray you'd use this word to make us more into the image of your son. I pray that you would help us to be submissive to the godly authorities that you've set up in our lives. Lord, forgive us when we are resistant. Forgive us when we're hypocritical. Help us to be consistent and help us to bear witness that we recognize your authority by submitting to the authorities that you've given to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit to the authority that we see on display to us in the Bible. When Paul speaks, when the prophets speak, when every one of these authors in Scripture speak to us, they are conduits.
of grace to us, authorized to speak to us on your behalf. Father, help us to see that, to embrace that, to submit to that. So Lord, do your work in us through the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.